0: I'm very delighted to introduce to you today, Reverend Amber Lowe Woodfork, and she has a new website called truthistrouble.com, and she is working on her doctorate, so we'll have her back so we can call her Dr. Amber Lowe Woodfork. (laughs) (laughs) But for right now, Reverend, I'll just call you Amber if that's cool. That's great. When we met on a voter suppression, voter education seminar a couple of weeks ago, you Mm -hmm. were talking about an experience that you had at Black Lives Matter at a protest here in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And I would love for you to share that experience because that really was very powerful.
1: Yeah, so um, the protests are still going on in Atlanta and across the country. Uh, Just a quick um, FYI to everyone but I went out during the summertime or specifically after George Floyd, I was murdered up in Minnesota. My parents were afraid, you know, so they were like, oh my God, you know, don't don't get into any trouble and, you know, be careful, be, be vigilant, be aware of your surroundings, right? My husband was kind of, he was fine. You know, he, he was more calm. You know, I felt like I had to go out to be part of it, right? There was one particular day, Lisa, where the uh, local police force uh, the National Guard and the Howard Patrol. We were on the intersection. Protesters were on the intersection downtown Atlanta of uh, Washington and Trinity Avenue, and all these um, law enforcement officers were trying to block us from proceeding in our march. Right? It's it's peaceful. You know, no one's being violent. No one was, you know, looting or doing anything like that. Right? You know, it was an organized, massive, peaceful demonstration um not only about George Floyd and bringing attention to that but also about the killings that ha- had taken place in Atlanta that had gone you know unprosecuted right at the hands of police officers and so as we were trying to proceed in our in our march again all these law enforcement officers are blocking us from going forward and they're in full riot gear i mean they have tanks and big guns and all that right it it looked like we were in a war zone. Right. And any person, anyone would have been afraid. Right. And there are people who who were afraid. There are folks who turned around, right. Who said, you know, I didn't sign up for this. People had their children out. They turned around, but I'm not sure. I'm not quite sure what what I can attribute it to. I think I have an idea, (laughs) but I wasn't afraid at all. I should have been right as a black person, as a young person, as a woman, I should have for sure felt vulnerable and afraid, but I wasn't, I felt calm. I felt peaceful. I felt at ease. And so, and I stayed, I stayed there for another hour, I think. And I've never felt, I suffered from anxiety and I'm always like, <laughs> but I've never, yeah, I'm always on the edge. Seriously. Like a cat. <laughs> And I, I've never in my life felt so at peace and so at ease and, and, and so calm. And I felt in my spirit that, you know, that the spirit of God was there with us, that the spirits of, you know, I'm, I'm really big into ancestral veneration, Right. So the spirits of my foreparents were there with us. Right. I really felt like there were there was a cloud of protective spirits around us. That kept us protected. Um, They didn't hurt us, right? Although they they were quite aggressive, you know, in their approach and their tone. And my thing, Lisa, was if we are unarmed, no one has weapons on them, right? So what's the purpose of you all having tear gas, of you all having tanks, guns? I'm not sure what to call them, you know, what what kind, right? But these were some big guns. And it felt like war had been declared on, on American citizens. We're just expressing and using our rights and our voice. And so, yeah, I mean, like I said, it it felt like a foreign presence had invaded our space, like a demonic entity almost, right? just seeing how they were dressed and how mean they were. But like I said, I was, I felt so at peace. And I was like, yep, I'm not going to let y'all scare me, intimidate me, make me leave. I have a right to be here and I'm going to stay here. Amber, you can attribute that to the presence of God watching
0: over you and a lot of the people that were there. My mm-hmm. son's girlfriend who is white was part of the protest for the first three weeks. Mm-hmm. And
1: she saw a lot of aggression on the part of the police. So aggressive. I mean, they were kettling protesters at, at a certain point. Right. Well, that even, even in the daytime, because this was in the middle of the day. Right. So we were kettled in, like I say on the corner of those two streets and we couldn't move like they, they had boxed us in which is illegal I believe and even in the evening you know because we had the curfew that Keisha Lance Bottoms our mayor in Atlanta you know had issued right a citywide curfew Um, I think it began at, at around 8 p.m. and so when people were trying to leave certain points of demonstration downtown they weren't they, they weren't allowed to because the law enforcement would box and kettle them in and so Yes. Yes. That happened several times. And so when you saw people getting tear gas for breaking curfew, they were almost forced to break curfew because they weren't allowed to leave. And so I was just like, you all are declaring war on us. I don't understand why. This is our right, our constitutional right, you know, to demonstrate, to protest. And it was so aggressive for no reason.
0: Well, and that's the thing that I found very upsetting. She she was telling how aggressive the police were. I didn't realize you all were boxed in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. and that the curfew breakers weren't really the bad guys. They, were no, just, they weren't. They were trying to leave and couldn't get out peacefully. Yeah,
1: and at one point, I was trying to leave myself, so I stayed out, like I say, where I was on that particular day. And, you know, I had been out there for so long. At a certain point, I was ready to leave, and I had a friend of mine who was asking me to come to Ebenezer Baptist Church uh, where Raphael Warnock is a pastor, right? He's running for um for U.S. Senate. But they were having a, a vigil, I believe, at the church at around five. This was around three o'clock when the riot folks showed up, the law enforcement, the National Guard, the local police department, the state patrol, right, state troopers. And we, I wasn't able to leave until like almost 4.45, almost five o'clock. Yeah, because they had boxed us in for so long. Well, we and this went,
0: was very underreported. She <laughs> it said was. She, she said she saw... There were like barricades and she said there was a white girl up on one of the barricades and the policeman very nicely asked her to get down. She mm-hmm. got down and then he went over to a black woman and jerked her off the barricade. Yeah,
1: we, I saw a lot of that. I saw a lot of, you know, physical touching, right, um, and jerking and pulling and I'm, it, it wasn't necessary. No one was threatening the police officers, no. throwing anything at them, pointing weapons because we had no weapons. Right. Well, and she got so upset
0: when she saw that she ran and got in the police officer's face and they were about to arrest her. Yeah. And she said it was amazing. The crowd parted for her. And she Mm -hmm. said she ran like she had never run before Mm -hmm. because she's like, I don't want to end up in jail for this. But she said that was just one example of so many things she saw wrong with actions that were very obviously different between the way the police handled white people Mm -hmm. and the way the police handled black people. What is this? What is this Amber? What is this
1: insanity? And so this is why um, at a couple of other protests um, I had gone to, on, you know, on different days. Um, and also on that day, you had the organizers of these marches and protests, right? They would ask the white people in the crowds to actually move to the front of the line to protect black people. Right. And so. Um, the, OK, well, that's the rally, good. Mm-hmm, so the rallying the rallying crowd was, you know, white allies to the front. And so uh, whenever you go out to these protests, if you see a line of, you know, white folks, it's intentional. And that is because Black people always put our bodies on the line at demonstrations, uh, figuratively and literally, right? We're always collateral damage in the fight against white supremacy. And so now it's time for those, you know, who are like-minded and want to see, you know, justice and equity and all these things, right? And now it's time for you to sacrifice your bodies the same ways that Black people and brown people, you know, always have in this country. And so that that was always inspiring to see, you know, people not being afraid to protect us because, again, we are the ones who get manhandled, right, by police. And, and even the women, it's it's sad when I see you know, big male police officers manhandling women. i <laughs> like, what is this? I don't understand this.
0: This is not the America that we want to believe exists. And yeah, and it, it does. And it has and for a
1: very long time. And and people are tired of it. I mean, folks, you know, I'm sure you, people in your generation and mine as well, I don't want to raise a child in this. I don't want my, and I don't have children, but, you know, if I were to have children... <laughs> I don't want them to be raised in this. I have nieces and nephews, eight of them, none of whom I want to experience the things that, you know, I have and that my parents have and that, you know, their parents have and our grandparents, right, that are still manifesting and showing up in different ways and in more insidious ways, right? I don't want them to experience that. And they're, they're very aware. Down to my youngest niece who is seven years old, she is very aware of what's going on right now. Um, and it gives them all anxiety. My sister told me a story. They live, I'm from Mississippi, and my family, most of my family still lives there, including my sister and her children and her, and her husband. And she was telling me that they were looking for a new home in an area, a suburb outside of Jackson, Mississippi called Madison. Madison is predominantly white. Um, and you have, you know, black families that live there as well. It's kind of, you know, I'm not frowned upon, but we're told not to move to Madison, right? Because of the intimidation from police, and so my sister was looking for a home. She and her husband were with the kids in the car. Their realtor is driving in front of them. And they are followed by police all throughout this neighborhood. Yes. And so they're pulled over. My brother-in-law and my sister are. They're pulled over with the kids in the car, right? The police ask them, you know, what are y'all doing here? And he says, you know, looking for a home. <laughs> you know, we, we, are, we, we are we are God. from the area. We're looking for a home here. And I think a week before that, my sister, this is a long story, but I'm, I'm gonna end it soon. <laughs> so no, dad, I,
0: I'm I think it's important yeah. for white people to hear this yes. because I have been blessed in having enough black people in my life. So I've heard these stories for a while, but a yeah. lot of people haven't. So Yeah, I mean they're, they're
1: they're looking for a home and then Lisa, in the year of our Lord, 2018, I remember this like it was yesterday because it was a, you know, a significant event. My brother had passed away. And so my dad and my, my dad and myself had gone to Jackson, where my sister you know lives, to pick her up um, so she could come and be with us for a few days. Right. And so the day that we were going to pick her up, she calls and is crying. She was trying to get her oil changed and a Klan rally was taking place outside of the establishment, yes, in <laughs> 2018 in Jackson, Mississippi, yes, a whole Klan rally. And she had her oldest son with her who's 13 years old, but he was 11 at the time. He was in tears. A child should never experience that no, ever, number one, and number two in 2018, you know, and so uh, we- this, um, Yeah, this wasn't
0: 1965.
1: Yeah, she she calls us in tears and saying that the whole time she was, you know, waiting for her car to get down the oil chain, she was, you know, afraid because white men had come in into the place and was just staring at her and her son the whole time, like, don't say a word. You know, it was, it was terrible.
0: Oh, my God. I mean, the trauma on suffering a death of a trauma. sibling. Exactly. Uh, and then the trauma of white supremacists basically intimidating. Yeah, Amber, and I think this is part of what's missing and I'm still learning a lot. I grew up in North Florida in the 60s. So Mm -hmm. I know what that looked like and it was not pretty. And you would think things had changed. My daughter and I had gone to the beach right before the George Floyd or right around the time of the George Floyd killing. And we got down there and the Black Lives Matter protest had started. And my daughter said to me, should we go home? Mm-hmm. And I said, no, we can help. Let's mm-hmm. stay here. We'll mobilize our forces. And, but it was, it was a pall cast over us because we felt like we should have been back helping. Mm-hmm. Her son is 10, my mm-hmm. grandson. And he has lived a very sheltered life. Yeah. And she had to sit him down and explain to him what had happened. Mm-hmm. And I said, what did he say? And he's a boy of very few words anyway. She said, his eyes got big as saucers. Mm-hmm. And he, he just, no. he didn't, he had no idea. And so now she's trying to get, you know, more mobilized and involved and explained to him without scaring him. But I said, this is white privilege. Exactly. Yeah. She, she had yeah. the ability to not tell her son about this until he was 10. Right. Whereas, your seven-year-old or eleven-year-old nephew probably knew when he
1: was five. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It's like I said, especially living in a place like Mississippi. You know that there's no way around not knowing what racism is, right, what what white supremacy is. And it's not just stories from the past, you know, that your parents and grandparents tell you. I mean, you, you see it every day. You see the vestiges of it, right, every day and the legacy of it. There has never not been a point in my life where I didn't know, number one, that I was Black, and number two, that I'm treated differently and that my friends and family are because, you know, of our complexion. I mean, I've never not known a world where or, or an existence where, I wasn't aware of that. N- number one, you receive two educations, right? <laughs> Public school or private school, wherever you go to school, right? You receive the education and then you receive, you know, another education that says, okay, this is what it's like. This is what, you know, what it was, what it continues to be. And this is what you can do. So number one, to survive it. And number two, to fight against it. I mean, my dad's oldest siblings, his brother... My uncle Larry, who's a professor at Benedict College, HBCU in um, South Carolina. My uncle Larry and my aunt Linda, they in the 50s or integrated a school in our neighborhood back home, right? So I have living relatives. <laughs> You know, That's an, an uncle name. who integrated a school. When I have people, you know, I have white classmates from, from grade school who will see me post things on social media about white supremacy and its prevalence, you know, today still and how it shows up in different systems. They'll comment and say, oh, you know, you and I were in the same class. This isn't real. And duh, 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 duh. I'm just like, first of all, we didn't receive the same education. Right. You received what you read in books provided by the school system, I receive a whole different education. And again, it's the stories. It's, and, and it's not just that. I read other books <laughs> outside of what what was provided by our school system. I mean, I was in seventh grade reading Toni Morrison and oh, Jane okay. <laughs> Yeah, You were on it. You were on top yeah, of it. My mom like made sure that, that I know who I am, where we come from, what this country is, and don't go through life thinking it's, it's one thing and it's another. And you'll be surprised when it shows up as what it is if you haven't been educated, right? And so I'm like, yes, we're in the same class, my friend, but we received, again, two entirely different, you know, types of education.
0: Well, and I have never felt so dumb in my life as I have felt these last six months. Yeah, it's a lot. I mean, I don't retain knowledge real well, but I will, I'm very clear, we were not taught about slavery. And growing up in North mm-hmm. Florida, which was right near Alabama, and then in Tallahassee, South Georgia, basically, right. what we were told was
1: you know, it was the
0: war between the states. Mm-hmm.
1: That's it how I like, like about, to put it, it
0: right? Yeah, it wasn't really about slavery. It was yeah, about, about
1: states' rights.
0: It was about the bad Northerners wanting to come down and make money in the South. Slavery was never really mentioned. Yeah. And and it was kind of all glossed over and it was like one chapter
1: yeah yeah and, that's how it was it, i mean i attended lisa a predominantly black school and it was the same way and you know i had i had a white classmates right but the school district itself or the school that that particular school rather that i attended in the district was predominantly black and it still wasn't a comprehensive education on slavery right it was just a chapter and like I say, that that is why my mother and my dad and my grandparents were so adamant that okay, we need to teach these kids.
0: And I think for white people it is it's so horrific. The more we learn, the more hard, I mean, and having done this podcast now, what I'm seeing is it all goes back to slavery. A yeah. lot
1: of this. Most of this stuff does. <laughs> And I mean, even the police itself. Policemen were created first. First and foremost, they stem from what's called slave patrols, right? You know, I just learned a, about that
0: last week.
1: Yes, yes. Literally, the American policing system stems from slave patrols, and slave patrols were meant to capture black folk who had tried to flee from the institution of slavery, right? Most of what we do in this country is tied to slavery because this country was built on slavery, like its whole economy, its whole its whole existence. The Great American Project, right, the experiment of America itself is built on the enslavement of black bodies and the genocide, right, of brown bodies. It's so fundamental and it's so simple. And we act like it's not, it's not a fact. And it is a fact. Lisa, quite frankly, you know, you said that okay, that, that you felt dumb in the past few months. It's black folks too who don't know how to talk about race and slavery, right? I mean, we're, we're all going through a learning process. That is so very true.
0: Reverend Amber Lowe Woodfork is our guest today on Alma, Am I Racist? You can visit her website. Her website's called truthistrouble.com. So I hope you'll join us again next week when we continue this conversation with Reverend Amber Lowe Woodfork. If you'd like to drop us a note, please feel free to send me an email, almaamiracist at gmail.com. Until next week on Alma Am I Racist, I'm Lisa Smith Henderson, and thank you for joining us.